Please remain standing uh, for the reading of God's word this morning. Our scripture passage is from Galatians 2, 20 through 21. That's page 973 in your pew Bible. Galatians 2, 20 through 21. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Our gracious and good Father, we praise you for your kindness to us. Thank you for sending your Son, the Lamb of God, for us sinners to be slain. Praise you that you have qualified us, you've transferred us from the domain of darkness into the light and the kingdom of your beloved Son. That by your grace, we are crucified with Christ. It's no longer us who live, but your Son who lives in us. Praise you for this grace. Praise you for your mercy. And we praise you for your word that we're going to hear preach. We ask that you would strengthen our pastor, be with his voice, and that you would anoint this time. We praise you and give you thanks for this freedom that we have. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, hopefully you're in your Bible in Galatians 2. And we've been studying the past couple weeks on the solas. And the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, or you could think of five pillars that the Protestant church today sees as their, as their foundation for why we're here this morning. And the question we've been asking and the question we will ask even this morning is, are those five pillars right? Are they biblical? Are they man-made? Or are they something we should continue and to subscribe to and continue to grow if from if they are from the Bible. Forgive me for uh, my voice this morning. It came down with a bit of a cold last night, so it might go out. And, um, but I trust we'll be able to have time to get through this. Let me pray once again for our time. Lord, we need your help. I need your help. We need your Holy Spirit to come and open our eyes to the truth of your word. And we ask that the word would speak clearly to us this morning. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Billy walked the aisle at the encouragement of the pastor when he was nine years old. To give his life to Christ. But since that day, and now he's in his twenties, he has struggled with whether or not he is saved. In contrast, Joe never walked an aisle. In fact, Joe never even prayed a prayer. And yet he's always considered himself a Christian. One Sunday morning, Susie gave the most amazing salvation testimony the church had ever heard. Radical freedom from addictive sin. A passionate love for Jesus Christ. Was evident to everyone in the building. Andrea struggles with reading her Bible. She continually wonders why others have such encouraging times in the word. But she does never... Have that same encouragement. She wonders what she is even doing wrong. 
On top of that, she's begun to be attracted to another man in the church other than her husband. She wonders if she is even saved. Craig reads his Bible on a daily basis. He's countless verses memorized. He can preach as well as the pastor. He's a stalwart defender of sound doctrine. But secretly, Craig is addicted to pornography. And he recognizes that his public life is hypocritical. Ryan grew up in the church. His parents grew up in. His parents grew up in. He's always attended. He can't ever remember time when he's not in church. But the new worship minister has changed the style of worship. He no longer feels like the church is helping the sheep have a worshipful experience on Sunday morning. An experience that he found continually strengthening for his week. Rick also doubts his salvation. Always does. Always has. He constantly fails to lead his wife and children. His work is often so busy that he forgets to read the Bible or falls asleep exhausted during the middle of the reading. He's often so depressed over his sin, he struggles with whether or not suicide is the answer. Jim has never doubted his salvation. He reads his Bible. He loves to hear the word preached. He serves on the deacon board. He has a wonderful family and marriage. He's always encouraging. He's always sharing the gospel. Question for you this morning. Which of these people are saved? How do you know whether or not you're saved? Maybe one of the testimonies that are purely made up, but I think probably not that far from many that are in pews across America this morning, far off from that. Maybe that's one of, maybe that's one of those are yours or something else like it. How do you know you are saved this morning? Are any of these people saved? If you're in your Bible, Galatians 2, 20 through 21, we are going to take this verse for just a few minutes and unpack it a bit. And then we're going to take another verse in Romans and unpack it a bit. And then we'll elaborate on that. Galatians 2, 20 through 21, it's already been read, but it's a short passage. Let me read it for us again. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. I want to point out a couple of things. Let's look at first at verse 20. First of all, I have been crucified with Christ. Now what does that mean? Well, in a sense, it means I'm dead with Christ. The death of Christ is where I died as well. Well, that doesn't make much sense. Let's continue. Paul says, it's no longer I who live, so I'm dead now in Christ, spiritually speaking, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What does that, what does that mean? Paul is, Paul is kind of twisting his metaphors a little bit. He's saying, I died. He's not meaning in the flesh. He's meaning his dead spirit is found its death in the death of Christ, and now he has life physically, as he continued to have, but he also has life spiritually in Christ. So he says, the life I'm now living physically, I'm living by faith in the Son of God. What does that mean, he's living by faith? He's living by, what's his faith grounded in? Notice his love, that Christ loved him, 
and gave himself for him. Christ loved him and and showed that love by going to the cross for him. So he says, I do not nullify, I do not cancel out the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So Paul here saying, I'm living by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me and died for me. Therefore, there's nothing I have done that could add to the faith I'm living. There's nothing I could do to add to the salvation I have through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And Paul is saying, if there's anything I can do, if the righteousness were through the law, if there's anything I could possibly do, get baptized, walk an aisle, pray a prayer, have a good feeling, love my Bible, like to go to church. If there's anything I could do, all those things are good. If there's anything I could do to add to, and if I did those things, add to being saved, Paul's saying, it's all off. Everything's off. Christ died for no purpose if we can add half of 1% to his saving grace. That's what he's saying. So let's go to Romans 8. Paul continuing to speak here. It's to the left of your Bible. Romans 8, 1 through 3. And very much a, a same line of thinking. Romans 8, 1 through 3. There is therefore now no, none, period, end of story, nothing, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Okay, let's stop there at verse 2 and 3. Notice he's setting up two different laws. One is a, a law of spirit of life. The life of Jesus Christ. The other one's the law of sin and death. So the law of sin and death. The, the, the law, the works that I can possibly do. Have no power to save. And therefore actually are the law that lead us to sin and death. Verse 3. For what God has done. For God has done with the law meaning the law of sin and death, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So the law of the sin and death could not save, and God has done what what that law could not do. He sent by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Okay, so if you have your Bibles open, you should see two words that book in this passage. In verse 1, There is now no condemnation. And verse 3, he condemns sin. There's that other condemn. So the condemnation of Christ, Christ being condemned for us, is what assures that there will be no condemnation for me ever eternally before God the righteous Father. That's what it says. And for sin, he condemns sin, my sin... In the flesh, meaning his flesh, his death, his blood, is what took my condemnation and has given me no condemnation before God the Father in Christ Jesus. 
So how can you know you are saved this morning? Do these two texts even answer the question? How can you know you are saved this morning? And I would say wholeheartedly, yes, yes, and yes, they do answer the question. But your response may be, but pastor, nowhere in these texts do I see anything I should feel or I should do or continue to do. And that's precisely the point. Because salvation is by Christ alone. The life we now live, according to Galatians, the truth that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ, according to Romans 8, is because of Christ alone. Nothing else is what saves us. So if you're saved this morning, the foundation of your salvation is not what you did at one time or what you do now. It's not what you felt on that day when you were saved versus how you feel about Christ now. Feelings, emotions, experiences, sorrows, joys, desires, struggles, great things. None of them are the anchor of your salvation. It is Christ alone that saves. And it is that truth upon which our soul is anchored. Not how we feel about it at some given moment in the day. So who is this Christ? If he really is Christ alone that saves, then we better know who... Christ is. Well, no need to go there to these different passages, but I'm going to spin us through from the Old Testament to the New. In Genesis 3, he is, Jesus is the promised son of Eve that would crush the serpent's head. And his heel in the crushing of the serpent's head would be bruised in the sense that in Genesis 3, the very beginning of the Bible, we already have the promise of the Savior Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who would come and die, his heel would be bruised as he defeated sin and death and Satan. But Genesis 7, we have Noah and the ark, and that's actually more than just a big boat on an international floodwaters. It is a picture of Christ as the only one who can save the world from the wrath of God. There was no boats. There was, there was no somebody that said, hey, Jonah, here's the blueprint. Boat. Jonah never heard of boat. Why? Rain. Never been rain. Here's a picture of Christ who is the one who can save the world from the wrath of God. Genesis 22. He's the picture of the sacrificial lamb who would cover the sins of the people. Exodus 25. He's the picture in the Ark of the Covenant as the one who would dwell among us. As the Ark of the Covenant was the sign of God's dwelling with his people. Christ is the sign of God dwelling with us. In Jonah, Christ is pictured as Jonah in the belly of the fish for three days. As Christ, the Son of Man, would be in the belly of the earth, the grave for three days, according to Matthew 12. Jonah, excuse me, John chapter 1, we're told that Jesus was in the beginning with God. In John chapter 8, Christ tells us, you are from below, us, I am from above, him, heaven, you are of this world, us, I am not of this world, Christ, I told you, you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Colossians 1.15, we're told Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
In First Peter 3, verse 15, we're told to, in our hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And no one is holy but God. Therefore, Christ being the Son of God. The Reformers said this of the Christ. Martin Luther, I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. John Calvin, Christ stepped in, took the punishment upon himself, bore the judgment due to sinners. With his own blood, he expiated the sins which made them enemies of God and therefore thereby satisfy him. We look to Christ alone for divine favor and fatherly love. Hence, Christ is called King of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6, and Our Peace, Ephesians 2, 14. Because he quiets all agitations of conscience. If we ask the means, we must come to the sacrifice by which God has been appeased. For anyone unconvinced that God is appeased by that one atonement in which Christ endured his wrath will never cease to tremble. In short, we must seek peace for ourselves solely in the anguish of Christ our Redeemer. Close quote. That's the the Reformers. But what does Christ have to say about himself? John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one, no one comes to the Father but by me. That is an exclusive message for a world that is dominated by inclusivity. Are you convinced this morning of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only means of salvation? Are you convinced? And we won't be convinced unless we see ourselves as anything but what we are, which is as a sinner justly deserving God's punishment for our sins. Anything else, do we really need Jesus Christ all that bad? But if we're sinners... As the Bible tells us that we are justly deserving of God's wrath upon our sin, then we better need something. And the Bible tells us that something that makes us right before that holy God is exclusively Jesus Christ. We live in a world that preaches inclusivity at all costs. Everybody's going to be a winner. Everybody gets to join in. We don't want to have anybody left out. And yet then we wonder... Why no one gets along. And we pick up a Bible. Which tells us that only exclusively. By Christ. Can we have fellowship with God. And with one another. And the world. And let's be honest. Even the church oftentimes cries out. Against the message of exclusivity. And says foul. No. There's got to be some other way. Surely if the Muslim is just a good Muslim. He can get to heaven. But you can see that the exclusivity of the gospel is actually an incredible comfort as well as life-giving. Brothers and sisters, if we can add even half of 1% to our salvation, there is no hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.21, then Christ died for no purpose. If I can add half of 1%, then I better hope that my half of 1% is better than your half of 
And you better be hoping your half of 1% is better than the next person's half of 1%. Because now your salvation is based upon whether your half is slightly that much more. And so we're actually incredibly comforted to know there's no half available. There's no ability to add any more. It's all of Christ or it's nothing. In fact, we're not saved when upon recognizing the love of Christ, we are motivated to accept what he did for us. That's a good thing to to see the glory of Jesus Christ on the cross and be motivated to accept that, but that doesn't save you. Accepting Christ is not what saves us. It's not a love for Christ that saves us. It isn't a joy in seeing the work of Christ on the cross that saves us. It's Christ that saves us. All of Christ saves all of me. His name, his righteousness, his blood, all of him credited to my account. Acts 4 verse 12. There is now no no salvation. There is now salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which me must be saved. And so when a person dies and they get to the gates of heaven as the joke seems to always begin with. If you pull out your passport and it reads anything other than the blood, the name of Jesus Christ, you're not saved. But the name of Jesus is given to us at the death of Christ. And so now it's not me, Cody Carnett. It is Jesus that is written, stamped across my passport that gives me interest, entrance into the kingdom. Not any other name. His righteousness is what covers me. It is the garment that I wear before the Holy Father who requires perfection. Isaiah 61 verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. It is, the, it is more than just the name of Christ that saves me. It is also his righteousness that, that envelops me. That is such a, a thick coat, that is such perfect righteousness, that there is nothing but that coat that God sees when He looks upon me. He sees not the sin that is still um, that is still there that I'm fighting with, but He has covered it. It has been covered with the righteousness of Christ. But it's also His blood. His blood that covers me as well. The blood of Christ is what distinguishes my soul for eternity to be given eternal life rather than eternal death. The sufficiency of the blood of Christ for the saved for all eternity. Hebrews 10, 19-23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter heaven by our works, no, but by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. D.A. Carson tells the story of of two Jews. uh, Certainly a made up story, but it sets the point strong. Of two Jews in Exodus a, a couple hours before the Passover. And you'll remember this is the one of the final plagues. And the Hebrews were to to take the blood of a a lamb and they were to cover the doorposts. And if 
you had the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, the death angel would pass over you. Thus the celebration of the Passover for the Jews. Here are two Jews and they're talking. And as they're chatting about this coming evening of this death angel going through and taking the firstborn. One of them, one son, says, I'm really struggling. I doubt. I'm fearful. I'm scared. This night, this is, this is horrible. The other one, confident, strong, no doubts. What is the grounds, D.R. Carson asked, what is the grounds of whether or not that death angel will pass over or enter? The grounds is not upon their strength of faith. Their grounds is not on their confidence. Their grounds uh, of, of being passed over is not upon how they are they're feeling. The grounds is upon the blood of the lamb covering the door. And that is the grounds of our salvation. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that covers us. The exclusivity of Christ is what makes the gospel incredibly comforting. Because it is the exclusivity of Christ that places the full measure of being included in the kingdom of heaven solely, only on the merit of Jesus Christ given to us by the grace of God. My being included in heaven is not by something I did, but by the free gift of God's grace in Christ. So when the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is the that is that Jesus Christ alone is what saves us by the grace of God through faith. When that gospel is preached, the impact upon the church, and this has been historically, is like is akin to an atomic bomb going off in the middle of a room. When the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached in truth, and you recognize that you are you have nothing that you bring to the table. And Jesus Christ alone is what saves you. That is what motivates and has always motivated the church to go forward in evangelism. And to preach the good news. And to be faithful to encourage others. And to be faithful to fight against sin. Because you realize, I didn't bring anything to the table. I don't keep myself at the table. It is by God's love through Christ. And therefore I want to tell people. It's the only way. So if it's Christ alone that saves, I have nothing to do with my salvation. So you might be asking then, what must I do to be saved? If I can't do anything, how do I come to salvation? How do I get eternal life rather than eternal death if I can't do anything? And that's a good question. What does scripture tell us? Turning your Bibles over to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 18, to the left, if you're using a pew Bible, it's page 877. In Luke 18, verse 9, Christ tells us a story, a parable. He says... He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Okay, right out of the gate. This is a story about two people. And one of them thinks there's something good within them. 
That they're somehow righteous on their own account, of their own account. There's something they have done to be good in the sight of God. And in the sight of God, goodness must be perfect. So Christ tells the story, verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The man was religious. The man went to church. The man put offering in the plate. The man prayed. The man did all that he thought he should do. The man was good in the eyes of men. In contrast, verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So the first thing I would tell you this morning, if you want to know how you might be saved is, is your heart cry, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That question applies not just to the person who wants to be saved, but the person who is a saved. You see, we have to recognize, brothers and sisters, if you are saved in Jesus Christ, we still have a heart that is prone to wonder, prone to sin, and it is prone to pride. It is prone to thinking that we are good, that we are religious, that we are a catch, that God has got something now, that we don't need just Christ alone. That our righteousness before God, that our right standing before Him, even the favor God gives us, is by something we did this week. I stopped sinning in that particular way, now God loves me more. I've been sinning that particular way, and God now loves me less. Our pride is filthy, and we must be those who repent of it, and even be like this tax collector, this publican, this poor man who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So is that your heart cry? If it is, both for the unbeliever and believer alike, we're told in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Is your heart burdened with your sin this morning? Then go to Christ. J.C. Ryle, the Anglican bishop, says this, Do you fear wrath? Christ can deliver you from the wrath to come. Do you fear the curse of a broken law? Christ can redeem you from the curse of the law. Do you feel far away? Christ has suffered to bring you nigh to God. Do you feel unclean? Christ's blood can cleanse all sin away. Do you feel imperfect? You shall be complete in Christ. Do you feel as if you were nothing? Christ shall be all in all to your soul. Never did saint reach heaven with any tale but this. I was washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb. So do you recognize the truth that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe that only his death is what makes you right before God for eternity? Is your belief in his death alone to save to such an extent that your response is to repent of your sinful ways of living and follow him? And the scriptures are clear, Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, meaning you will humble yourself, you recognize your sin, and you submit your way to Him, and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Put your trust in Christ alone to save you. And may I assure you that if you will do so, it is not that which, that's not what saves you. It's simply the evidence of Christ having already saved you. 1 Peter 2.24 For he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. You have been healed of your sins by the wounds of Jesus Christ. Oh, brothers and sisters, what amazing truth is this, that in Christ alone are we saved. It's the unending spring of joy in this life, and it's the unending spring of joy that will continue for eternity. And it is the truth that will even recalibrate today our prideful hearts. There's a great hymn of the faith written by a lady who was afflicted almost her entire life with an illness. She could barely get out. And yet she used her gift of poetry to encourage the church. And she wrote a hymn that is one of the greatest declarations of Christ alone that I think has ever been penned by the words of man. It's the hymn, My Faith is Found, A Resting Place. Listen carefully. In closing, My faith is found a resting place, not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me, Shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to him. He'll never cast me out. My heart is leaning on the word, the written word of God. Salvation by my Savior's name. Salvation through his blood. My great physician heals the sick, the lost he came to save. For me, his precious blood he shed. For me, his life he gave. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and then he died for me. If you can say that this morning, you are most blessed indeed. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful this morning that we've done nothing to have gained this relationship, eternal relationship with you, a loving God. We had no ability to remove your wrath from us because of our sin. But you sent your son Jesus because you loved us to save us. And his saving grace is what has turned you from being 100% against us to being those who are now 100% without condemnation. If God is for us, Romans 8 tells us, who can be against us? There is no one that can remove our salvation because the blood of Jesus Christ assures us that you are for us for eternity. Oh, Father, may we respond with humility. May we respond 
with repenting from our pride and thinking we've done something to gain the salvation or we're doing anything to continue to walk in the glorious grace of that salvation. It is all of you. Father, I pray if there's someone here this morning that has not heard this message or maybe for the first time this message has become clear that Jesus Christ is the only way for sinners to be saved from the punishment of God upon sin. That they might respond in faith. They might respond by trusting. You would save them. They would repent of their sin. The world might see someone now not living under their own desires and their own authority, but under the authority of Jesus Christ as Lord. Father, we believe you save souls. We believe from your scripture this morning that you're alone, that you are the one alone that can save. And we trust that you will do that good work and encourage us even as believers this week. May this gospel, this free gift, be that which strengthens us as we fight against sin. We didn't gain the salvation or the ability to fight it. But now you've given us that grace and may we fight well for your glory and your glory alone. Father, we thank you in Christ alone are we saved. As we sing now, as we prepare to go through this week, may this firm and steady and anchor of anchor to our soul, the, the good news of Jesus Christ be that which, which takes us through whatever winds may blow against our lives this week that would cause us to doubt. May we continue to turn our eyes to Christ. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.